Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. Enjoy more of the things you love with TCL. Get in the know, nonstop Viking stock. It's Purple Daily on Score North and ScoreNorth.com. And welcome into a special edition, or editions, I should say, plural, uh, plural of Purple Daily. Judd Zolgad, Declan Goff producing. And Declan, we're about to go to a very interesting oh place right now. I, I don't want to call it a dark place, although it sort of was. But it's a very interesting Viking season that we're about to explore in depth. We're calling it Tales from 2010, a Viking season unlike any other. And I think that's fair to say, don't you? I do. I do. You know, I, I know this is a season, whether you were a fan like me. I mean, I was in high school. I was just finishing up senior year of high school when all this was unfolding. I'm now in the heart of being a, a Vikings fan. You know, I, I've been a fan for about 10 years. My earliest memories are 2000 season. So now that I'm 17, 18 at the time of this, I, I, I'm fully ingrained into the Vikings. I'm, I'm only nine months removed from at the time what is the most daggering Vikings loss that has ever happened to me in, in the NFC Championship game. And boy, did, uh, did the wheels come off the bus in 2010. So you have seen at this young point in your life you have seen viking dysfunction yeah I've, but not but not like the wheels being completely off the car i saw is that fair correct my, my earliest vikings memory is 41 donut um and then i remember nate pool and i remember even just dysfunctional close losses in so 07, your heart's been 08. hardened a little bit it's been a hardened and i've seen some things and i've been through some stuff but Nothing, I don't think, is being prepared to what's about to happen. Fan standpoint, tell me what what young 17, about to turn 18-year-old Declan Goff is thinking from the heartbreak and heart crush of the loss in the Superdome in the conference championship game, and then they're going to run the entire thing back, especially once Favre agrees to come back in 2010. Like, what's going through as 2010 kicks off with a Thursday night game again in the Superdome, what's going through your mind as a as a um, big time Viking fan? I'm jacked. I I am ready to run it back. It's uh, I mean you got to imagine too. I mean this was like the first week of this of senior year of high school is when the NFL season was starting. So you're riding that emotion of being a senior and being the top dog in, in, in your school and stuff. And and I was convinced they could do this again. I was absolutely convinced. I know I'm not the only one who thought that, obviously. I think the majority of people well, like me I didn't. This. I covered them for yeah. the Star Tribune. I, I was old. I was absolutely <laughs> convinced that uh, when Favre made his last second plea again to come back, that we can do this one more time. And uh, said we were wrong. Tales from 2010, <laughs> a Viking season unlike any other. Let's get to it right now. You know, the thing is, is it's not that I never wanted to play. When I came back, the biggest thing I stressed was it was more about the guys and, and feeling like there was unfinished business. It's something I felt like I, I really needed to do. Of course, I came down and more hutched than anyone, twisted my arm. In all honesty, Al, there was a big, a big part of me, there was some fear. Fear of failure. Hey, folks, Brian Murphy back here. It's been a while since I've talked to you uh, in my post-journalism career, but I got an opportunity here to uh, to spearhead a project I've been kind of talking about for a long time and been looking forward to. We call it Tales from 2010, a Viking season like no other. Hard to believe it's been a decade since the roof literally caved in on the franchise during its 50th season in the National Football League, a, a season that, that started with such high hopes, but that turned, it out, turned out to be such misguided expectations. Uh, we'll have a chance to look back. I covered the team at the time. 
uh, for the St. Paul Pioneer Press and TwinCities.com. Of course, Judd Zolgad, you guys might remember, was the beat writer for the Star Tribune. Declan Goff, our handy producer, also was... Were you out of diapers yet by then, or I, were you still? I was in, in pull-ups. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I had uh, moved up from from the diapers <laughs> to the pull-ups at St. Paul Central High School. So yes, I remember this very, very well from my youth. I mean, an entertaining season, no doubt. Judd, if I'm not mistaken, did this drive you into retirement as a beat writer this season? It certainly helped. I think when the roof caved in under the weight of the early December snowstorm, when the Vikings were supposed to play the Giants, I think that played a large role in being the final straw of what the Vikings um, being on the Vikings beat could do to a man's soul. I I just remembered uh, I, I was able to get uh, the team sent me the clips, the daily clips, the newspaper website coverage every day from July 1st to January 15th, 2011. And I spent uh, last night uh, surfing some of that. And it was really enjoyable to go back, not only to look at what I remembered as the big headlines, but how everybody covered it on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour, real-time basis. And you could just almost see in the writing and the columnists, whether it was Jim Suhan uh, or Tom Powers or Sansevier, myself, Jeremy Fowler, who was a first year on the on the beat, now is at ESPN. Poor Jeremy. Tom Pelissero, I think, was first year with 1500, the old 1500. You could almost feel the, exa- feel the exhaustion in the words as these headlines and these calamities kept happening. And when we got to the to the end, uh, toward the end, of course, old man Winter had one more laugh on us because he stranded us in Philadelphia for four days for a game that should have been played Sunday night that ended up getting getting played Tuesday night. Um, but Judd, I wanted to kind of throw it back to you a little bit. I I don't know if you. I think we've talked about this jokingly in the past. Uh, we before the I think it was the third preseason game in San Francisco. Favre had just resigned. Everybody kind of saw that coming, uh-huh. and he was play a few snaps uh, at Old Candlestick Park against the 49ers. And the night before the game, I think we were staying at the airport. You and I found some some dive bar nearby, which I'm sure surprises nobody. And we sat down there. I know I had an anchor steam, the local brew. Yeah, I remember, you, I remember saying to you, this has the vibe of an incredible fairy tale type season. Or just an unmitigated disaster. And despite even saying that, I don't think we could have predicted anything that happened over the next six months. I remember the conversation well because 2009 had ended so oddly and had had blown up um, and had been, for the most part, a really good year. What, um, 13 wins and a berth in the uh, conference championship game against the Saints at the Superdome. But I remember the way that it ended with what uh, the far pass crosses body Fahu Tahi being the extra man in when when twelve men uh, arrived in a huddle after a timeout, and yeah, we were going back and forth trying to speculate about what it might be all about in two thousand ten, and the interesting thing was they had essentially once Favre agreed to return Murph everybody back, and so you're thinking yeah all twenty two yeah. starters, and so you're thinking to yourself at the time. Is this going to work out as well as I think it might, or or did the uh, the game against the Saints serve as a prelude to the upcoming disaster? Because the way that that game unfolded was certainly, if you you were a Viking fan, a horrific ending. And yeah, I remember that we were both basically. I think we both at the time thought that they were going to be competitive and pretty good. But there was this what fifteen percent journalist side to us. In that conversation, in that bar about, what if this goes really wrong? But you are right. Your last statement, nobody, not you, not me, not the guy serving the anchor steams, could have ever, (laughs) ever predicted that literally the roof would cave in. In my wildest dreams, I thought it could go wrong. I never thought it could go that wrong. Well, it's it's convenient to think, well, hey, they got all 22 starters back from a conference championship team, uh, but for, and we could go through the litany of things that happened at the end of that Saints game from Favre getting beat up, which turned out to be uh, the Saints were incentivized to do that by defensive coordinator Greg Williams, and of course, throwing out bounties to take out Favre. Uh, you had the, the five turno- turnovers, uh, Peterson fumbling at the goal line, you had the 12... 12- men in the huddle coming out of a timeout that pushed what would have been a a 50-yarder or 
49, 50-yard field goal. Yeah, I right around there. Yep. Potential for Ryan Longwell to win it at the end of regulation to at least a 55-yarder, yep. which he had such a good season. I think everybody was pretty confident he would have buried it. Indoors, yes. Rolling out on an ankle that had been mangled by the Dirty Saints, couldn't roll roll out, of course, throws across his body, and, of course, uh, the Porter interception. And not to be forgotten, Sidney Rice gets hurt in that game. He suffers a hip injury during that game. Turns out that hip injury didn't go away, and there were some reasons why it may not have gone away or may not have gone away in a timely fashion. What do we think of that? So that one was set up a cascade of events that led to other bad decisions. Oh, absolutely. So that, that was weird because Rice got hurt in that game and we didn't know it. And so, so in retrospect, I guess what I was told happened was that Rice went to see the doctor and the doctor said, you probably need to have this repaired surgically. And Sidney Rice and his people, not surprisingly, Murph went to the team and said, you know what? We'll have that done if you give us a new contract and pay us. And, the and vi- guess what? His, his new the agent that year was none other than Drew Rosenhaus. That's right. That's exactly right. And so, and so, of course, the Vikings said, "Oh no, no, he's got a contract." To which Rosenhaus and Sydney both said, "If that's the case, I'm not going to get the procedure done because we know that there are a lot of guys who play professional sports who cherish the ability to have their time off, right?" So they don't have to rehab, no nothing. Um, and then, long story short, at the start of training camp, the first day, Rice, mysteriously to us at the time, shows up on the physically unable to perform list, and we're all like, what's going on? And Childress comes out and said, he's got, got a hip. Now, he didn't divulge what we found out after the fact, but yes, that was, so day one, Mankato, 2010, at this point, to be clear as well, no Brett Favre yet because Favre was still trying uh, to decide if he was going to play in 2010 or not. But the most important piece to Favre, aside from Peterson, but the target of Favre's passes throughout 2009 is now hurt, and he's hurt far worse than we know. And so that really, if there was a domino one, that might have been, as far as the start of 2010, that might have been unbeknownst to us the first domino to fall on what would then happen. Domino two would have probably been Brett Favre's ankle, which of course was mangled so badly in that game. Uh, I think a lot of people wondered, even though he had uh, wondered if this might be it because he had been beat up so bad. Uh, So there was a lot of speculation only six weeks later, he ended up going on the tonight show with Jay Leno. And I thought about this. I kind of made a quick decision with our editors. I said, Hey, you know, I have a friend that lives in Burbank. They tape the show at a Burbank studio. They tape this at about five o'clock Pacific time. He's going to go on there. I'm sure he's not going to declare anything, but you never know what he might say next sitting next to Jay Leno. Why don't I just fly out there? I can walk in for free as a, as a viewer. Uh, and I did that and I ended up sneaking in a notebook and I'm scribbling all these notes down. He was the second guest <laughs> behind Matthew McConaughey who had nothing to promote other than just being you know, a good old boy from Texas and watching Favre and McConaughey kind of comparing draws on the couch was quite entertaining, except for the fact the clock was ticking. And I'm scribbling these notes as Favre is kind of waffling about how he's got to think about it. Just wants to enjoy the off season. I got beat up pretty bad. And I'm trying to look over at the, uh, the ushers to make sure they don't think I'm just some hack reporter, which I was sneaking in there to get this story out. Right. It it was a story, but I ended up filing it from my car just to say, hey, Brett Favre told Jay Leno, nothing. <laughs> so tune in for a few more months. Mm-hmm. But that started again, the will he, won't he drama, which extended throughout the summer. Brad Childress makes a trip down to Hattiesburg. They didn't get along too well. I don't think uh, the talk on the front porch went all that well. It went all the way down to the wire. As, every, as everybody knows, this was hanging over everyone's head in Mankato. Everybody thought he would come back. But as the clock kept ticking, as the team returned to Winter Park, still no Brett Favre, they decide to send a three-man mission down to Hattiesburg. Yes, and so that that's – man, where, where do we start? So <laughs> so we all um, assumed that Favre was going to skip the Mankato portion of training camp and show. In retrospect, it turned out that he really was thinking long and hard 
I made it to the conference title game. And and the most important thing, too, to be clear here, the most important thing, in my opinion, about Brett in 2009 was not the success of going and playing the Saints. That was gravy. The most important thing for Brett in 2009 was shoving up as far as he could up Ted Thompson and Mike McCarthy's rear ends and beating them twice. So Twice. Yeah, So, but what Brett wanted was he wanted to prove to the Packers that he could still play, which he could. Um, he beat them twice. But we so we all thought, I think, at the beginning of camp, once the Mankato portion's done, Brett is going to show up. That wasn't true. So Brett's at home sort of debating this. And then, like you j- just said, the idea originally was Childress said, I'm going to go down there, fly down there, and talk to him. He was told by a few of the players, no, don't do that. He doesn't like you that much. Let's have players go. And that leads us to the great uh, practice at Winter Park where Longwell, Hutchinson, and Jared Allen are all gone for practice. And I I had been tipped off that they were going to be gone, got to practice that day to the open portion of practice, confirmed that they were gone, and of course, this is three. If if it had just been Ryan, I think it'd be like, oh, the kicker's gone, right? But it's also the eventual Hall of Fame left guard, and no question about it, Pro Bowl defensive end, and they're all gone. And everyone's saying, okay, something's up here. Now I want you to tell the story though about what the Vikings did because this is the, in the chaos of 2010. It fits in perfect about what the Vikings did because that was not Childress's day to talk. And they didn't think, you know what? There's three prominent players gone. The head coach should probably talk. What did they do during the post-practice media access? Uh, Because I really think now it's more appropriate than ever if you're putting together the pieces of 2010 and just how out out of control it got for the Minnesota Vikings. Well, this was a prelude of the communication and credibility gap that would hound Childress throughout the season. Uh, yes, you're right. This was the part of training camp we were still watching, I believe, open practices. So it was it was the middle of the day. It was, you know, clearly we have three major prominent veterans that are missing. But because Brad had talked the day before, the head coach was not available. So after practice, uh, you see uh, – I think it was offensive coordinator Daryl Bevel first come to the come to the podium or to the microphone and was pretty cagey and sidestepping questions. Hey, where's your starting left guard? Hey, where's Jared Allen at? Um, we didn't see Ryan Longwell either. And Bevel didn't really out and out lie. He basically just said, uh, Brad told me they're in the building somewhere looking at some things. So then, of course, my namesake, Brian Murphy, who was the special teams coordinator at the time, he's next and he's taken even more shrapnel because Ryan Longwell isn't there. But instead of being cagey and, and dumping it on Brad, he decides to basically flat out lie. Where's Ryan Longwell at? Oh, he's inside in the, uh, in the uh, indoor facility. Uh, they're working on, uh, they're working on gimmick plays. Yeah. They're working on gimmick plays. So I did press him a bit and be like, is Ryan Longwell at the facility? Yeah. They're over there working gimmick plays. Well, of course they weren't because we go back to the media room and a half hour later, we're looking up at the TVs, and NFL Network, of course, has either footage of them landing or taking off from Hattiesburg. Uh, I'm not sure if they had Favre yet or not, but it was obvious that the three-man mission was in Mississippi, and they were coming back with their biggest bounty yet. Yeah, and, and so they they got down, down there, and I think the story was they didn't tell Brett that they were coming, right? And no, so I think he showed up at night, and he was like, ah, I don't want to talk. Here's I'm going to bed. He he talked to him. He talked to him and said, "Okay, guys, I'm going to sleep." And he went up to sleep. And and the next day, I think they basically said, "Look, dude, in their minds, we have a chance yeah. to make a Super Bowl." Okay, if you don't come back, who's starting at quarterback? Uh, and so they basically guilted him into coming back. And the next day, he flew back into Flying Cloud, I believe. To a circus, Inquiry, right. to a circus that was a circus, but not the, the exact same ter- uh, circus as he has flown to in 2009. When I think he flew into St. Paul's Holman Field, which was when the Channel Five uh, copter followed him and Childress 
back through the entire trip, and there were at least, what, um, a thousand people outside Winter Park that day, including a guy in a chicken suit. It was mayhem completely. Um, but, yeah, they, they convinced, they basically, I think, in retrospect, now, guilted Brett to come back by saying, everybody else is back, this team was damn good, help us. And he yes. did, and he did, but but the important thing to keep in mind was we were all convinced, oh, of course he came back. Ten years after, I think it's very clear that he came back only when his arm was severely twisted, Murph. Yeah, they, they laid it on thick. Uh, you know, Hutchinson in particular, and even Jared Allen, hey, don't do it for the money. Don't do it for the passing records. Hell, don't even do it for the folks in Minnesota. Do it for the guys in the locker room. Yep. You know, they all do it for the guys in the foxhole. Yep. And, you know, they were driving around his property on a four-wheeler, I think, or a pickup truck. They were they had grilled some steaks. You know, it was just dudes hanging out. You know, they probably had a few Coors Lights or some other light, can of beer. And just, you know, it just – you. I'm sure Brett was like, I'm totally content with where I'm at right now. I've got plenty of money. I don't need this. I got beat up badly. Yep. But they appealed to his good old boy, win one for the Gipper kind. And that's a hard thing to turn down with three of your comrades right next to you. And that's exactly what happened. And I don't think it took very long into either the preseason or certainly the regular season before Brett had to be thinking, what the hell am I thinking? I, I think the most important thing uh, to keep in mind also that you didn't know at the time um, that quickly became apparent with Brett Favre in 2010, I don't think anybody informed him just how hurt Sidney Rice was. Right. Uh, so I think he came back because Brett, Brett's not a dumb guy, but I think he's oblivious at times. So I think he came back thinking, I, I made Sidney last year. I'll make him this year. And my guess is he got out there and he's like, hey, where's where's Sidney Rice? And they said he's hurt. Um, and then it became very, very clear that Brett Favre, Murph, did not have that target. But I think if anybody had told Brett in Mississippi, Sidney Rice is probably not going to play for a long time. I think Brett Favre says, boys, it's been nice seeing you. Enjoy your plane ride home. Because that, no doubt. that was an immediate game changer as far as what he could and couldn't do, even with Adrian still there. And another subplot of a million of them that played out, I don't think people remember this too. Percy Harvin was having serious migraine issues during training camp. His grandmother also died. So he had been missing for several days, maybe even a week uh, to grieve. Then he came back and he was having some migraine issues. And if you remember Judd, I mean, he collapsed on the field. Oh, I remember well. Bring an ambulance out there. People thought he had a major medical, I mean, life-saving issue here. Uh, and it was kind of an eerie foreshadowing, too, of the scene when Teddy Bridgewater ended up going down uh, six years later with his horrific, horrific knee injury. But the sight of an ambulance backing up onto the practice field to take Percy Harvin to Fairview South Hospital, Yep. to think that that would be a minor footnote four months later. But it should be noted that Harvin was really never the same that season. So not only did Favre not have his primary target in Sidney Rice, yep. who could go up and beat defenders, he didn't have his his playmaking guy from the slot. They basically had to run out and get Greg Camarillo. And I don't think anybody thought Greg Camarillo for ben, was for Benny Sapp. For Benny Sapp. Who would have been a valuable nickel corner. Which that came in to bite That's them later on. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um yeah. so it just it you know, when you look back, you see all these you see these things that occurred starting in January, mm -hmm. and you start to see how the 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 cascade of events that led to decisions that were made hastily uh, in bringing back Randy Moss, getting rid of him, uh, how Brad Childress kind of slid his own throat that way. But again, back in the summer, it was this sense of these guys are going to just plug in and play. They went from yes. Sage Rosenfels, Tavares Jackson, maybe they're a playoff contender, to they got the old gunslinger back. They're a Super Bowl contender, no doubt. And let's rock and roll. And it just never, ever, uh, they could never reclaim that magic or that momentum. So to backtrack as well on the Percy thing. So he shows up at training camp in Mankato and he's there for a couple days and then 
as you said, Murph, his grandmother passes away and he disappears and he doesn't come back and he does not come back. And Childress starts to get upset. Uh, So I was told that Brad started to basically call him constantly. Come back, you come back. And Percy got more and more annoyed and upset and was like, I'm not coming back. Um, And so he comes back. He now has the migraines. And I remember the day that he collapsed, he was actually in street clothes and watched and walked out to watch practice. And he walked by me and you could tell that, that he was still off. And he walked by me, went out to practice. And I'll never forget the scene because I'm watching the drill and Percy's like at the front of the group that's just observing the drill among the players, but he's not participating in practice. And he vomits. He like leans over and vomits and collapses in it. And I'm like, oh, my God. And so he's laying there. And I think that they thought it was a migraine. It's going to be fine thing. And so he's like laying there and they're observing him and then trying to uh, take care of, of him. But if you recall, it took a while before the ambulance got called, uh, but they finally called it and it came out and drove out onto the field. And so to yes. your point, again, the whole thing to watch it unfold in that way was absolutely bizarre. But that also, so the time that he left camp and didn't come back for what felt like an extended period of time was also, I think, where his his relationship with Childress started to dis, uh, dissolve in some ways because Brad did get very upset that Percy didn't put more immediacy in trying to return to the team. And I'm going to tell you right now, having covered Percy for a few years, the team in that case was never going to be his top priority no matter how much his head coach wanted it to be. Yeah, and I think, you know, don't forget the – this is only a couple of years after Brad Childress cut Marcus Robinson on Christmas Eve. And that caused, caused all kinds of turmoil uh, as him being kind of a cold hearted, uncaring tyrant. And that reputation carried through all the way through until he was let go. He was never able to really shake that. And I think this kind of stirred up some memories of that as well. So we get into the regular season and unlike 2009, where they, they were able to open in Cleveland and Detroit, a couple of cupcakes and maybe ease Favre into that playbook and just hand the ball to Adrian Peterson. No, they got to go back down to new Orleans for the Thursday night NFL opener yep. against the hated saints in the cauldron of the Superdome yep. with the sense. Now bounty gate hadn't broke as a story yet, but there were still a lot of bitter feelings the Vikings had with the saints because they felt that Favre was targeted. Uh, they ended up losing, I think, 14 to 10 or something like that. It wasn't a very entertaining game. But then they get home to a very mediocre Miami team. And again, the offense can't do anything. And I think that's when the first panic buttons started coming out. They're 0-2, and they've looked bad doing it. And again, it just had this vibe of, this just doesn't seem like this is going to be what everybody thought it was going to be. The Dolphins game is the first time that I really felt that Favre his heart wasn't necessarily there. Like 2009, Brian, he was invested beyond belief, right? Like he was in. From the moment he got there, he was in. Um, the The Dolphins game was the first time that I felt that there was one, a true fracture among probably Childress and Brett and the team itself compared to, to what felt like a very tight-knit group the season before. But also just as far as playing, to go back to, at this point in time, Brett's what, 40-ish? I think he's yeah, he turned 31 in October. Right. So he's 40. Um, and he had been, you know, absolutely decimated in the uh, conference title game against the Saints to the point where I think that he that he was comfortable just being done. And and he had been talked into coming back. And I think that there were things after he did come back, such as Sidney Rice being hurt, that probably made him question that. But by the Dolphins game, I think in Brett's mind, he was in full question mode of, I really didn't need to do this. And and part of what made Brett great is when Brett was great, he was all in. Like there was no question. His commitment was complete. And I don't even blame him. But I think by two games into 2010, his commitment was, I really proved everybody wrong last year. I didn't win a Super Bowl, but I proved him wrong. I don't need to be doing this again. And that leg and his body by that point was a complete mess. And it was pretty soon, not far after that, that another body part got into more trouble with him because we, as we know, 
what happened was they took care of the Lions quickly. Then there was the bye week. And then there was the re-signing of Randy Moss or the trade for Randy Moss, which just sent everybody into a tizzy. We've solved our problem. There's our big playmaker. Get your 84 jerseys back out. We're going to party like it's 1998 again. Brett Favre to Randy Moss. Are you kidding? This is going to solve all kinds of problems. Well, before Randy Moss can even catch a pass for Brett Favre, the the website Deadspin breaks a story that he had sent allegedly. uh, He confirmed the voicemails, but he didn't commit, uh, confirm or admit to sending lewd photos of his uh, <clears throat> nether regions to a Jets employee, as we all remember, named Jen Sturger. And, of course, not only does this story break uh, and, and undercut the Moss trade and acquisition, but it also happens a couple of days before the Vikings are scheduled to go to the Meadowlands to play, guess who? The New York Jets on Monday Night Football. I can't remember a bigger media circus that didn't involve sports but did involve tabloids than that Monday night game at the Meadowlands. Let's back up here because it's 2010, okay? Deadspin, which now had become a very, you know, common thing, right? Going online, finding stories, finding dirt. Deadspin, I think among most of us who worked in the Twin Cities, was seen as, oh, that's interesting, but do I believe it, right? But do I believe it? And they paid for the information and and were upfront about that. Now, what makes this so interesting, though, and where Brett Favre was a very unfortunate man in 2010 was, if you recall, the lead-up to that Jets-Vikings game, the Twins were playing host to the Yankees in the American League playoffs. And so so the day of access for Favre that Wednesday, I think was the day before Game 1 of the Twins-Yankees series at Target Field, if I'm not mistaken. And so if you're the Daily News or you're the Post, boy, let's see, you're in town. What should you go cover? How about it's a night game? Let's go talk to Brett at noon. Yeah, how about the how about the Jets uh the Jets controversy? And so at Winter Park for the scrum that Brett did in the practice shed, the post is there, Daily News, I think, a bunch of people. Uh because I I gotta be truthful. I'm not sure that those are questions that we would have asked or harped on, but they were questions the tabloids were going to be all over. And because of that. All hell breaks loose, not because Favre implicated himself terribly, but they had the answers that they wanted because they had the information. That's how I saw yes. it. And then you also had, I'm sure their editors back in New York, uh, where this was a society story and a gossip story as much as it was a sports story, uh, driving this. And, yes. and it was a television story. And it, they had photos and they had audio. And the and Dutchman just- stuff to them was credible, I think. Yeah, it, and, and, you know, you look back on it, again, Deadspin at that time had only been around a couple of years, and you're right, it was sort of of this, you'd read it for some entertainment value, but you didn't really look at it as a journalistic endeavor. Uh, that changed over the years. It's, of course, yeah. been folded under by now, but they had done some good work after that. But, again, it was it was a situation where you had them paying for information. You had Jen Sturger basically saying, I have nothing to do with this. I don't want anything to do with this. What are we to do with this? And what is the NFL supposed to do? Well, the NFL can't look the other way on this. So the NFL says, we're going to launch an investigation. Yep. So that's all you need now is Roger Goodell and his merry band of investigators are now pursuing your quarterback as you're heading into this monumental game against the New York Jets. Yes. And, of course, during that game, uh, Favre plays okay to start. Uh, he ends up throwing his 500th career touchdown pass to Randy Moss uh, in the end zone. A great hookup, a great storyline. There was a furious fourth quarter comeback, but at the end of the day, the Jets, who are a much better team, and they had been to the AFC Championship game the year before under Rex Ryan, they took care of business. And we also have Fire's first entry onto the injury report with elbow tendonitis. And again, now we're starting another domino effect of injuries that would plague him all the way to the very end. Yeah, and don't forget, at that point, too, the consecutive game streak is alive and well, and that was a huge deal uh, to Favre. Uh, But yeah, I think the the Deadspin Sturger stuff to him, too, uh, and to your point, the investigation launched by the league, was also the final straw of, why am I back here? 
Like every bit of that could have been avoided if he didn't come back, right? No and, doubt. And if so, he doesn't come back, Deadspin doesn't write that story. And the league, I don't. And the league doesn't care. So he he did all of these things. He came back, and, and I think that there were all of these pieces um, that fell on fa- as far as him saying, "Did I really come back?" And then that did, and I think that was the final thing of him saying, "Okay, this is too much." And I'll never forget post game presser um in giant stadium in the morning in giant stadium brett yeah brett comes in it's incredibly late he is completely stalled of course the the uh new york press had waited brett out and he's at the podium talking and i've never seen a man basically gesticulate to wave his wedding band more than brett Favre did that night He's like waving his hands furiously to say, see, I got my wedding band on. See, I got my wedding band on. And, and I bet you he had his Wrangler jeans on, too, oh, just to I'm, show he's kind of guy. I'm sure he did. But these were all sort of telltale signs of what the hell am I covering? Like, yeah, what's where's this? Here? What is this? Crazy night. This is. But I mean, just adding to this was this was the gradual buildup to what what became or was in progress unbeknownst to us a circus because it felt like a circus i mean you've got one of the most popular quarterbacks in the history of the league being accused of sending pictures of his groin to a jets employee at a podium in new york at 1 30 in the morning waving his left hand to prove that he's married and we're all saying aren't we supposed to be just covering a football team and it was anything but a football team no, and this was what October tenth, yeah. October fifth. That's what I'm saying. Like you're thinking was, it's going to end. No, this was just no. This was this had this was not even remotely off the rails yet. It was going fast. There was a curve up ahead. Everybody noticed it, but no, this was going to go off the rails uh, awfully quickly. You know, I was weighing: Am I letting them down by not playing, or will I let them down by playing and maybe not playing at the level that I feel like I should, or maybe the level that they? You know, they expect me to play. But as great of a year as it was last year, and it was, um, all I could think about this offseason was what I could have done better in that last game to, you know, to, to lead that team to, to the Super Bowl. So with the specter of the Sturger, Sturger investigation hanging over him and the Moss failure and, you know, Childress eventually getting fired, Brett Favre, could not stay off the injury report. He ends up getting hurt. Uh, again, he has his elbow tendonitis. Uh, he had an- off-season ankle surgery that was kind of bothering him. He was on the injury report because of that. Elbow tendonitis. He got hit hard in New England on Halloween and had a 10-stitch cut on his chin. Then against Buffalo at home at the Metrodome, the Vikings are just trying to stabilize at this point, and they come up probably with their best win of the year in terms of how good they looked and what that team could have been. But in the process, Brett Favre gets pancaked into the turf, sprains his right throwing shoulder, and suddenly that 290-some-odd consecutive game streak is in jeopardy, mm-hmm. and he's looking 40 going on 70. Yeah, and he so he was, by that point in time, so thoroughly beaten up. And Murph, if you, you recall, the game against the Patriots in Foxborough was where we found out that Brett couldn't stand the sight of blood. Uh, cause he got caught and he was down and they took him to the sideline and he was, he went off on a cart and he went off on a cart and he was holding a towel to his chin. And we all thought, Oh my God, he's cut badly. Well, he bled a lot and it turned out that he couldn't stand the sight of blood and especially his own blood. It wasn't that bad. Like he got cut, but guys in hockey get cut like that constantly. So the toughest guy in football. Yes, couldn't stand we all blood. thought, yeah, we all thought, Oh my God, Brett Favre must really be hurt because he looks like he's about to throw up. No, Brett Favre was not as tough, at least when it came to the sight of blood as we thought. But yeah, the Buffalo game is where I believe uh, was the first time I thought he might miss time, which again, now with how that year unfolded was fitting. Uh, but that streak was what he had. Like we all assumed, and I, I had seen Brett, uh, keep in mind I covered him for two years in Green Bay for the Star Tribune when the Star Tribune covered the Packers in 03 and 04, and Brett Favre had broken his throwing thumb the week before a bye in a Packers game in 03 against the St. Louis Rams, and his thumb was broken, and there, there was a lot of speculation coming off the bye then that the Packers had 
if he could play against the Vikings at the Metrodome. And it was like nip and tuck. And Brett Favre worked his butt off to do rehab as far as treatment and stuff. Uh, and they casted it up and he played. But that went a long way towards explaining how important that streak was to him. So now fast forward to 2010 and we get to the point of the streak might end. And that's really what Brett had left. Like the season had gone awry. Everything was going wrong, but Brett still had the streak, and now there was the uh, potential that the streak was going to end, which storyline-wise at that time was an absolutely huge deal. Sure, and it wasn't just a shoulder. It was his right throwing shoulder. Yep. So, you know, he could hobble around on his bad ankle. He could, you know, maybe pass out or not pass out with the stitches but and the elbow, but the throwing shoulder – on top of everything else, at, at a, in, a, in a lost season, uh, really spelled the end. But it was funny because the next game, of course, was the infamous Giants game at the Metrodome, which was canceled uh, to Monday night in Detroit. And there was sort of some chatter amidst all the chaos of the building falling down and trying to get to Detroit and what all this means in the big picture. Well, hey, there's another 24, four, you know, 36 hours for Brett Favre to magically heal. Yep. Well, it didn't happen. He didn't end up starting in Detroit. I think it was Tavares Jackson or was it Joe Webb? I can't remember. Uh, no, Tavares started that game. He did start Webb that game started in Detroit. In Philadelphia. Yep. Lost to the Giants. That was awful. And that was the first time you ever saw Brett Favre in, you know, sweats and a ski cap on the sideline. And the streak did end at 297 consecutive games, which, you know, as far as football goes, I mean, you look at, you know, Cal Ripken, you look at, you know, Jim Marshall's streak too. But Brett Favre, boy, he took a beating over his – 20-year career and always showed up the next week. Uh, that was sort of the beginning of the march to the end. Yes, and do, do you recall as well for that the game in uh, Ford Field, the fact that they had stenciled a Vikings logo at the 50? Like the Vikings were trying to be like, this is our home game. And they had, I think they, well, they made, brought the PA announcer with them in the skull chant and, or the, the drum, the Gallahorn. Yeah, the, the Gallahorn. That, that's pre skull chant. But they had, like, uh, as I recall, put the uh, Viking, they had attempted to stencil a Viking logo at the 50 in Detroit. It was just so sad. And there's Favre standing there, just completely broken. And the season is just off the rails. And yeah, that was. I think among I think going from being sort of amused by the circus to actually being saddened by it. I think that game against the Giants in Detroit was the first time that it really just felt pathetic. Like the end of the children's stuff did sort of, but it was still a circus. But just seeing Brett standing there, not starting, the Vikings just broken and battered as a team. Less God bless him, the nicest guy to I think ever coach a football team. Um, just looking at that scene in Ford Field that Monday night on a regionally televised game, I think, on Fox, was the first time that it just sort of all felt pathetic. Yeah, in a half-empty stadium, but mostly Detroit, indifferent Detroit fans. And and I think at that point, he might have had just as much gray hair as you do now, Judd, and he was 40, but he seemed to be aging by the day. Oh, God, he, he was gray. You're exactly older. right. Yep. And then, of course, he thought it was pathetic, it, it really got – it was sad, and then it got to be a little creepy because the next weekend they did everything they could to get TCF Bank Stadium ready. But, of course, Chris Cluey was concerned, as a lot of players were concerned, that there were no heating coils under there. This is going to be 20 degrees. It was just buried under 20 inches of snow. There's, it's going to be hard as, as concrete, which it was. And, of course, Brett Favre, who miraculously recovered enough – ends up texting Leslie Frazier on Monday morning after the Vikings had declared him out. Hey, I think I can make a go at this. Let's see how I do in warmups. Convinces him to play, and he gets pancaked into the hard turf, is knocked unconscious, and that's the last time we ever see Brett Favre take a snap. Corey Wooten, uh, who would go on to play for the Vikings, went around Bryant McKinney, correct? Yes. Absolutely walked around him and clobbered Favre. Um, and the problem was this. So so that is uh, before the coils to heat the field were installed at uh, TCF Bank Stadium. And the problem was that they had taken a tarp and put it on the field all day long and blown hot air below the tarp, which did heat the field until you took the tarp off the field. And so I think that they – I think I was told that it was actually playable for like half of the first – quarter on that snowy cold day and after that it was an ice rink 
It was an and so yeah, so Favre is the guy that basically has left a uh, a mess on the field, and they have to essentially scrape him him off. Um, and I don't think Murph before or since I don't think I've ever seen a player who was declared out come back to play. Like if you're out, you're usually out. I didn't even know until that day that there that the league allowed you uh, to skirt that and upgrade a guy who was declared out for for what I assume is gambling purposes. So oh no doubt that whole, no doubt and- that whole thing. I remember when I got wind that afternoon that Favre might play. My first reaction was, you're crazy. He can't play. He's declared out. Like, nobody is counting on him playing, including the gamblers. Um, And so I was absolutely amazed when I think it was Vikings PR, I think Hagen called me and said that he is being upgraded from out to questionable at that time. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah. And so at that point in time, late on that afternoon, a Monday, you basically knew Favre was going to try and play. And by that point of that season, there was nothing in my brain that said, this is a good idea. And look how it ended, sadly. Absolutely. It didn't surprise me. Not only should he not have played, he certainly should have not been walked to the postgame podium after suffering that concussion. And he sort of, there was sort of a, an, an, I've since watched it on YouTube. It's still out there. It's about four and a half minutes. Post game after that giant uh, Bears loss, clearly suffered a concussion. Walked up to the podium, started babbling anyway. Mid sentence, he's kind of talking to, "Hey, Father, how you doing?" His his pastor from Green Bay, yep. who may or may not have even been in the room at that point. I don't know who he was talking to, yep. uh, but he was sort of stuttering, not stuttering, but just incomplete sentences. Well, he couldn't not complete a thought, yeah. There, and you could tell he just should not have been talking publicly. And he was, it was kind of a weird gallows humor about it, like. You know, I think I suffered a concussion, but I don't remember. <laughs> well, and it was you know, a major one, right? He's not feeding himself through a tube yeah. uh, for 20 years. But I just, this again was before, the, I, I think the, the protocol was relatively new, uh, but I don't know if it was enforced as much. And they also didn't have the injury tents. And it was just sort of like, who was going to tell Brett Favre anything? Right. So that kind of that's kind of how it, it ended publicly. And then, of course, he didn't play in Detroit, even though there was speculation he would in the fine or he didn't play in Philadelphia nor did he play in Detroit and then he did finally hang it up I think the Monday uh or I think he gave his final loose conference in Detroit right uh the day the the day of the week 17 game yeah I think that's right over trust me it's over you may not believe me it's over but I know it's over I think honestly everybody thought he was right oh yeah by that point in time I mean that that whole thing was such a disaster and I, I recall being in the uh, post-game press conference in TCF Bank Stadium downstairs there, and Frazier talked. And I started to walk out because I'm like, Favre's n- not going to come in and talk. So I-, I might as well at that point in time go to the locker room. And they're like, no, Favre's coming in. And I remember thinking, what? Like, this guy was not – He would, this was not a minor concussion. Like, this guy was out cold, and you could tell he was not moving. Um, but I do, I do think that that is the – Sole purpose why the league subsequently passed a rule that if a guy is concussed, he can't talk now. So basically, if you have a concussion, you are off the hook as far as your responsibilities in talking to uh, the press goes because Favre did. And it was just, to your point, he was just, I mean, he babbled regardless. But in this case, it was disjointed. It was uncomfortable. Um, But yeah, I I remember when Favre said, I'm done at the end of uh, 2010 not questioning it one bit. And I think the truth was that he really, really regretted coming back at all. And I can't blame him. I can't blame him. It was, it went as poorly as it could have possibly gone for a guy who keep in mind, I'll keep saying it really had gotten what he wanted in Oh nine. Didn't need to come back. The Packers wins. The Packers wins satisfied his need to prove those people wrong. A, a possible championship would have been gravy, would have been great, but I really think the success of 09 was what he desired, and he got it, and he just got talked into coming back in 2010. Well, he did pick up another $16 million, too, so I don't know if we should sympathize too much about his legacy. <laughs> but even 10 years later, and I will wrap it up with this on, on Favre, and you covered him a lot more than I did, Judd. I think 2010 will be viewed 
very, very uh, much of an afterthought. I mean, there was the embarrassment of the scandal. There was the sort of sad demise of the injuries and the fact that, yeah, he probably regrets coming back. But I don't think any of that can cloud what he accomplished in 2009, how he energized the fan base. I mean, hey, that shot to Greg Lewis in the back of the end zone as time expired to beat the 49ers, that's why you got Brett Favre. The interception he threw in the NFC Championship game, that's what you have to endure with Brett Favre. And you have to endure the highs and the lows. And the Vikings got Vikings fans got all they could get out of two years of him from, from an entertainment and a production and a uh, impact, I, I think, for anybody that was in town for 18 months like he was. Ten-plus years now after this all transpired, Murph, I will say this from my standpoint. 2010, which was a nightmare to cover, like the whole thing was just from start to finish, was just a complete train wreck uh, beyond belief, the like sports-wise that I will never cover or see again. 2010 was worth it for 2009. 2009 was, I mean, let's just start with Brett Favre, one of the greatest Green Bay Packers of all time, being a Viking. Um, but 2009 was so much fun to cover, so much fun to, to watch from the first two wins of, of it being, Brett's going to manage the game. It's going to be very, you know, simple. To your point about game three, the dart in the back of the end zone to beat San Fran, touchdown, the whole thing. If you told me, all right, to get 2009, you have to go through 2010 again. It almost is worth it because 09 was that entertaining and had so many great storylines. Yeah, so many great storylines that season. So we wrapped up one of them. We're going to come back for the next episode, and we're going to talk about Randy Moss because we can't forget about the fact that Randy Moss actually came back to that season. He was here about a half hour, and he went out and upset all the tables and the food and the the apple cart on his way out of town, but man, did he create some headlines in the 28 days he was here for 2.0. So we'll get back to that next, uh, in the next episode of uh, Tales from 2010. So we'll talk soon. Awesome, guys. Nice. Sorry, Declan, I should drag you in. I got to get you in more a little bit. Oh, that's okay. No, that was, you guys were